Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The minute you land, you're straight down a separate entrance, tested straight away, shuffled into a bus, and you're taken to the hotel and you're put in your room and locked in. They treat you as if you're infected, basically. Just out of curiosity, what did you do? Did you binge Netflix? I, I did bring two really uh, long spy novels, but didn't have a chance to read one page. Peter Daszak is a zoologist and president of EcoHealth Alliance. That's a global environmental health nonprofit. Peter just returned from a trip to Wuhan, China. He was there as part of a World Health Organization investigation into the origins of the first COVID-19 outbreak. Now, I last spoke to Dashak in March of 2020. In fact, it was one of our first ever episodes of this podcast. We spoke in person, if you can believe, but we didn't shake hands. With the death toll from COVID-19 now close to two and a half million worldwide, we have learned a lot. But many questions about the virus remain, including this critically important origins question. Why is it so important? You're about to hear. Today, Dashak joins me to talk about what it's like on the ground in Wuhan and his collaboration with Chinese scientists to search for answers. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Coronavirus, Fact versus Fiction. I started off by asking Dashak about the mission of his trip and what kind of information this investigative team was really looking for. We went to China with expectations of hoping we would see some new data. We got that. We, we had expectations of finding some clues as to the origin, and we definitely got that. And, and the leads that we got are really important. We, we now know that there is a clear potential pathway from the rural areas of China, where the, the closest relative viruses are, into that market in Wuhan. We now know from the human side that there was a, a lot of circulation of virus during December, but probably not much prior to December. So it was it was an outbreak that was focused on Wuhan that, that seems to have that wildlife connection that could have happened in Wuhan. You, you and I spoke about a year ago, and as you know, um, Peter, I, I've been following this very closely, talking to people um, all over the world. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of information that is still being gathered, safe to say. What was new information for you? What did you learn this time that you didn't already know? Well, we heard very early on, and you'll remember this, we heard that people from the China CDC went into the market after it closed and swabbed the surfaces and tested to see if there was any evidence of the virus there. And what we found out in China was they collected over 900 samples, including from animals that were frozen in, in the market that were left there. Um, and, and although none of the animals were positive, we did find out that there were wildlife in that market and that there were supply chains from the places where the closest relative viruses are in bats. So that's a clear link. Um, secondly, we've, we found real new data on human cases um, in December. 
a lot more cases than we thought and um, a lot more cases that weren't associated with the market. So it looks like there was a, there was a big spreading event in Wuhan that included places outside of the Huanan seafood market, but it doesn't rule it out as an origin, but it suggests there may be other places that were the real origin. Um, we don't know. Um, thirdly, there was a real clue from sitting down with one of the patients. We actually got to meet the person who got infected on December the 8th. He was, you know, you expect this to be someone who works in a market. It was actually an accountant. It was kind of interesting. And we were asking him questions about, you know, what are your hobbies? Did you go into to any mass gatherings? Did you visit any wildlife markets? It, he did not do any of the above. He lived a pretty straightforward apartment life. You know, his hobby was surfing the internet. And we were we were kind of looking for clues. And then eventually at the end of the interview, he said his parents visited a local community wet market. So what that tells us is there were more than one market in um, in Wuhan and there are connections to other markets too that might need to be investigated. When you hear, uh, according to the lead investigator for the for the WHO mission, that there are several signs indicating that there were maybe over a dozen strains of the virus in Wuhan already by December. What what? How does that fit into this? Because you know, just just for for people who are listening, you know, we didn't really hear much about strains you know, until the last few months. And the idea is that as the virus is circulating more and more, it may start to uh, accumulate these mutations. Many of the mutations are, are rather inconsequential, but uh, some can be um, make the virus more transmissible, for example. But that took time. What, what this team found as, as we sat down with our China colleagues is that in early December, there was something like 13 um, genetic sequences of different SARS-infected um, people. And the virus in eight of those was identical, but in five of them, there were some mutations. Um, so the different strains you could say, but actually it's not like the UK strain or the South Africa variant. These are just a few changes to the genetic sequence. So it's not that something more um, virulent had evolved. What it really tells us is something very important though. It tells us that in early December, by mid-December, there was a lot of circulation in Wuhan, outside of the market, um, enough to allow these mutations to happen. Um, and it tells us that not necessarily that the virus began its outbreak earlier, but that the outbreak was very rapid and included the whole community at that point. So there was community spread by mid-December, and, and that was significant. Does the the findings still implicate the markets then as likely being the source of at least the initial spread? I think so. I, I think what we've got here is, um, and, and, you know, I visited the market and I've been to dozens of, of animal markets across Southeast Asia in China. The alleyways are narrow. It, it's somewhat uh, run down. You know, even though it's closed, you can see the infrastructure is not in good shape. So this would have been a busy, crowded place. They definitely had live animals. They had live frogs, snakes, fish, turtles. And there's some evidence that's not been proven yet that there were um, live mammals for sale there. But what we really found that was key is that in those freezers were frozen carcasses of wildlife that we know can carry coronaviruses. Just a small number, and they did test negative, but it gives you a clue. This market was bringing in animals that could have carried the virus, um, and it was bringing them in from places where the closest related virus was in bats. 
If that market was doing it in, in the middle of Wuhan, probably other markets were. Can you say with a fair amount of certainty that, that you just debunked the idea that this started in a lab? There is really still no evidence that this came from a lab. It turns out that, that in China, they heard these conspiracies and they did act. Um, they checked over the lab. They tested the people that worked in the lab and didn't find any evidence of, 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 um, of COVID antibodies. Um, the lab is very well run. It's modern. There was just no um, feeling on either team, the China side or the WHO side, that that held water at all. It's not a complete throwing out of that hypothesis. It's it's a conclusion that it's extremely unlikely and that there is a much more likely hypothesis out there. Every lab worker in that lab was tested and found negative. Does it strike you that this particular pathogen, this novel coronavirus, seemed to be so contagious almost right away. I mean, typically you seem to hear that these things come out after a jump and they sort of sputter along for a bit, right? As they sort start to get to know human cells. This particular coronavirus seems to have come out of the gate 90 miles an hour. What does that mean to you? Yeah, I mean, well, we don't know if it sputtered along for a while. We don't know that yet. So that's one point. It may have sputtered along for a month or two and evolved rapidly. Um, but even if it didn't, what it tells me is that, you know, and we know this, there are hundreds of different strains of these viruses circulating in bats in South China and Southeast Asia. Um, they have many different characteristics. Some of them will be able to infect humans straight away. Some of them, unfortunately, like this one, may be really good at infecting people and spreading. Um, they're the ones we're going to pick up. They're the ones we're going to get noticed. Um, we've done some back-of-the-envelope calculations on how many times these spillover events happen in Southeast Asia. We estimate over a million people a year in Southeast Asia are infected by bat-origin coronaviruses every single year. Um, most of those viruses probably never take off like this one. When they do, we notice them, and that's what's happened here, I think. You know, I'm curious, um, and obviously you've been doing this sort of work for a long time. I've, I've done a few big reporting pieces out of China in the past on, on different topics. And, you know, Peter, sometimes I find it challenging to parse out what is real and what is not. How much trust do you have in the information that's being given to you that you can't necessarily verify yourself? You have to place some faith in it. Well, I think there's a, there's a reason I was on this, uh, this WHO mission, and that's because I've been working in China for 15 years. Um, and I'm, you know, I've got access to some of the people who work on these viruses, including at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And yes, the politics are there. It's crystal clear in the room right there. We, we debated these issues because we wanted to make sure the science led the way. And that's really what you've got to fall back on. You're talking to scientists. You know that they're thinking scientifically about the hypotheses, not politically. Yet you know there's a political influence really on both sides. We know that different countries also have strong political opinions about the origins of COVID. We tried to let the science speak. The report will have the science speaking, and I'm hoping it will be pretty clear. On the China side, they, were, they had a lot of enthusiasm for the cold chain hypothesis, which is the idea that it may have begun in another country and came on frozen food. But they had even more enthusiasm for um, a, a wild animal like a bat spilling a virus over into um, domesticated farmed wildlife and then into people, which is also what on the WHO side 
we all felt was the most likely. So there is a consensus on the science, um, despite the politics. What, what, what would you, what have we learned, do you think, from this particular outbreak so far? I think one of the big lessons is in this modern information age, uh, you can never um, work quickly enough. You have to put the information out before you've even got it almost. Um, and any delay is too much because we want instant information on this. And, and one of the problems we have in public health, I think, is that if you put out information that's wrong, it can be really damaging, both in public confidence and it can lead to lives lost. And I think that hesitancy around that is just difficult these days. You've got to really go with your gut feeling. Um, an outbreak investigation is going to be imperfect, but get that information out quickly and involve the international community. So the big lesson on both sides is um, if you're going to have trade wars, have a trade war. Don't have a public health war. There's people I've talked to at very high levels of the, the CDC who say, look, you know, we thought maybe it would be 10,000, 20,000 people who would die. It's been 50-fold that. And if you if you even dissect that out more, it basically is saying, yes, it was a bad virus. It was a contagious virus. We, we were learning more and more about it all the time. But the vast majority of the mortality and morbidity, at least in the United States, has not been so much the virus itself, has, has been our response to that virus. Is that a fair statement? Unfortunately, yes. And look, I, I, the mortality is horrible. And I think that there's something even more unpleasant about it. I think people don't see it. I think that, that people die in hospital, in ICU, quietly, relatives sob quietly on their laptops, and you just don't see it. Um, you don't see people out in the street. You don't miss yet the neighbours who've gone because you're not back in the community yet. And I think that's the mistake we make. We don't realise how significant this disease is because we're still on kind of semi-lockdown. I know neighbours that have died. My father-in-law died of COVID brutally in hospital in the UK. It is extremely ugly, this disease. And to me, I was scared from day one. And I think any good scientist needs to say that. We are scared of this disease. Well, I, I'm wearing... Um, Two masks now, and I'm going out as little as possible. I'm the designated shopper for the family. We only go to certain stores where we know they do it right. You've really got to look after it because if I get infected, sure, the, the probability is I'll do okay. But what if I don't? What if I end up in ICU? Every time, every step you take towards a worse disease, you have a less chance of survival. And at some point, there's nothing you can do. You know, you're in the hands of the gods. And um, that's not where I want to be. I want to play a prediction that you made about the future when we last spoke. Here's what you said almost a year ago. I think that in 50 years, we'll look back on this age and say, yeah, we were in the pandemic era, but we dealt with it. I, I don't think that I'm the only one who, who would say, I hope that we don't have to go through this again anytime soon. Um, but this is the pandemic era, you're saying. What does a pandemic era really look like and feel like? And how prepared do you think we are now, given everything you've learned over this past year? Well, pan pandemic era is, you know, people talk about this virus as a once in a century pandemic because the last big one was 1918 flu. But actually, the risk every year is the same of a once in a century pandemic. That's how risk catches you out. And what, what our work shows is that every year there are more and more emerging diseases, any one of which could lead to a pandemic. So we're going to see more of these. 
Um, we're living in an age when our, our population growth is unprecedented. Our, our footprint on the planet is just incredible. And part of that are things like the wildlife trade and livestock production that drive pandemic risk. So if we carry on business as usual, we're going to see more and more pandemics and we're never going to escape. We've got to prevent the, these pandemics by dealing with the underlying drivers like the wildlife trade, deforestation. Um, and we're going to do it. I have a strong optimism about this. You know, I look to the youth. I look to the climate change activists. I look to my children. And they, they're not going to stand for this. They're going to move forwards and live a, a, a better life that's more attuned to the planet that will reduce the risk. And that's going to be very positive. The World Health Organization's preliminary report on their investigation in Wuhan is due to come out next week. If you have questions, please record them as a voice memo and email them to asksanjay at cnn.com. We might even include them on the next podcast. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.